1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's not in the abstract. That's God forgives us of our sins and cleanses us of all our unrighteousness. We're just saying, holy, holy, a billion times, God is separate, right? Holy, holiness is that he is set apart from creation. He is completely distinct from us. He's not a superman. He is wholly different. But here's the catch. We're called to be different. He calls us to be set apart from this world. He calls us to be different from this world. Not, not in a sense of self-righteousness, but because his Holy Spirit comes in and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. It's a, it's a very practical, functional thing. You guys, I, I am... It's powerful. And... Uh, I had a friend fall this week. He's falling hard. Because he toyed around with this crap. And we're going to be talking about today. And, and our culture does. Our society does. Our society says that these things we can get close to and we cannot be and we can be unscathed and that we can survive it, but we can't. And so we're going to talk about marriage and singleness and, and how the Bible, how God sees these things through the gospel lens of both marriage and singleness. And how sexual immorality in our world is making both of those completely messed up. And for the sake of our youth and our kids and our own marriages, you guys God promises us that he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is not hopeful or wishful thinking or that somehow we'll be okay and that you know God just cleanses, of our, cleanses us of our sins abstractly and we'll be okay. This is real. This is real truth. This is real freedom. God does not want us to be in bondage to this world. And yet... Many of us are in this church and definitely everybody outside of the church. And so this, this week, I've, I've, it's been rough. And, um, and I know that there are, um, I know we all struggle in different respects in the stuff that we're going to be talking about. And what I would ask for this morning is that, that this doesn't... Um, that we allow God to shape our perspective. That's what we've been talking about through 1 Corinthians, right? Show us the gospel lens. Allow us to see the world, our society, each other, this culture, through God's eyes. That's, that's our hope, and that's our prayer. So let me, let me start by praying. Father, we thank you for this privilege to come before you, to read your words, to read your truth, God, would you speak in ways that I can't speak? Change hearts. 
in ways that only you can. Change our affections, change our passions, align them with you, Father. That's our prayer. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Hopefully this week you read through 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. Paul ends that with, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's, that's the summary statement that he launches into what we're going to be talking about today. And we're going to be going through 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And, and I, I hope in your, in, around the dining room table or in your small group or wherever you were studying those things, you, you thought about what the implications of that verse is. You are not your own. If there's anything that flies in the face of society, it's that statement. That you are not your own and that Jesus purchased you. Your redemption is because God sent his son to purchase your freedom from bondage to slavery. And so if you in here are in slavery to anything, right? I mean, Paul even says, like, I don't, I, I think it was last week. I might be. <laughs> um, he even says, I don't want to be dominated by anything. Or he says, I, I choose not to be dominated by anything. It's a choice because we have the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't make light of that. And I know, and I'm, I'm trust me, I, I want to pull punches. I want to say, well, but there's, there's nuances and there's, and there's genetic things and there's all sorts of stuff and, and predispositions and, and all sorts of stuff that we can make excuses for. But the reality is, is that Scripture doesn't make excuses for those things. Scripture says that God is powerful. If he created you that way with, with those temptations or that thing or whatever, he can also remove it. And perhaps he created you with it just so that he can remove it. Is that possible? Does that glorify God? Absolutely. I know, I'm already screaming and it's only like five minutes in, so I apologize. Um, <laughs> you are not your own. So we're going to pick up here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're just going to, we're going to hit through this and um, I posted on the family page, you know, there's going to be some, some pretty little tough topics in here, so I'll just advise again, like, you know, if, if this is something that you don't want um, kids or youth or whatever to hear I, I understand it. I'm not going to be dwelling on anything in some uncomfortable way. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So realize, remember, communication back and forth between the Corinthian church and Paul. And so they asked him questions. So in chapter 7, we're going to, and, he, and he's going to go, let me answer this one. Let me answer this one. Let me answer this one. So he's kind of chunking through this stuff and ask, answering some questions. But we don't know exactly what the questions are. Um, there's no quotes in Greek, okay? So what we're about to read is probably in quotes in all of your guys' Bibles. And that's the commentators going, oh, we believe that this is, a, uh, this is the question. And Paul's restating the question and then answering the question. He doesn't do that across the board, but the commentators are pretty much unanimously on board that this in particular was a question from them. And the question is, um, or the statement rather from them is, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And then Paul responds, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. 
Okay, let me give you some context here. So you read through this, and, and I'll just, like, this whole section is like context, 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 right? You could take literally one verse out of this, and you could completely derail. In fact, most of chapter 7 is Paul operating in the gray area, and it's a beautiful thing because it's not a lot of dogmatic yes to this, no to this. It's kind of, well, it depends on the situation, and well, what do you, what's your objective, and what's the purpose here? And so this is kind of how Paul is walking through this. And so what we have is that the Corinthian church, remember, in the midst of this sexually depraved, you know, debaucherous world, the Christians went, we're not doing any of that. Celibacy, that's the answer. We're going we're gonna to swing from one extreme to the other. Sound familiar? We do this all the time, right? Because we go, this we see as bad, so let's swing to the complete opposite side of this, and that's it. We're done. Celibacy. And so they were saying, it's good. It's better. It's noble. It's spiritually honorable to be celibate. And Paul goes, no. Paul's single, by the way. Now, commentators aren't agreed on whether Paul was once married and then um, maybe uh, uh, he became a widower, or we really don't know. It's all conjecture. What we do know is that the Paul that is talking and writing never talks about a wife, never talks about kids, and apparently seems to be pretty nomadic and can kind of go <laughs> wherever he wants, right, because he does all these missionary tours. So, um, so it's presumed that he's single. And so what he, what he, a single man, is saying is it's good or it's, it's, that it's, it's good for you to be married. It's okay. Celibacy is not the answer. You're not spiritually more noble if you choose to abstain from sex. Why? Well, because he's, he's going to get into this. And, he, and what does he say? He says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Okay, so <laughs> it's going to seem like I'm tap dancing a lot up here. And I promise you, like, this is, this is very nuanced, Right? You go, oh, it's because we're all just horrible humans, and marriage solves all of that. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying that the Corinthians went, sexual immorality is a lot. Like, it's all over the place. What's the solution? No sex. And he goes, no, no, no. Sexual immorality is a problem. What's a, what's a solution? Faithfulness inside of marriage. He says, it's good. Like, you can be together as a man and a woman in a marriage. That's okay. That's, that is a option. And he's going to go on, so just hang with me as we walk through this, because I think it's going to hit absolutely everybody's, single, everybody's context in here at some point, okay? Um, so that's what he says. He says that this temptation, it can be answered not just in abstaining, but also in faithfulness in marriage. There's two ways to solve this problem. He identifies sexual immorality as a problem. In fact, he has throughout Corinthians, right? And remember, that word, sexual immorality, is porneia. It, it, it's a very broad term, very broad. I mean, it, it includes absolutely everything that you could think of that is outside of sex inside of marriage. Everything else is wrapped up under that term, okay? So I'll, I'll let you guys think through that list, okay? All right. So in summary, there's two ways to neutralize sexual immorality. One is celibacy, and the other one is marriage. That's basically Paul's summary here. Read verse 3. It says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, 
except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I'll start there at the end. Verse 6. Probably you guys all have a paragraph break between 5 and 6. I don't, I, I disagree with that, okay? So that 6 slides up. He's talking about that concession, which is it's okay to abstain for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. He's like, it's not a commandment. I'm telling you, like, you can do that. I'm not commanding you to do that. This is the gray area that Paul's operating in, okay? So check this out. This I know we read this, and some, there's smirks in the audience, and that's fine, okay? This was revolutionary. For, for somebody to say the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does, you guys, that's, that, is, that was not culturally normative. You guys understand that? Like, we have to really grasp the equality that Paul sees here within the relationship of the husband and the wife. The mutual respect, the mutual responsibility, the mutuality of this whole affair is about this one flesh union. He's pointing back to the one flesh union in marriage. And that's exactly what Paul is pointing to here. And so what he's saying here is that abstinence inside of marriage, right? Or, or saying, and now, so realize that the context is the Corinthians were still holding this ethic, this religious ethic that like, hey, I could be celibate and maybe I should be and I'd be more spiritually noble if I did that. And so inside of the marriage, you could imagine that that would create some undue conflict, right? And Paul's going, dude, stop. You're not winning God points by, being, by abstaining from sex with your wife or your husband. Okay, so that's what Paul is putting to bed, right? So that's a pretty, that's a pretty significant thing that, that Paul establishes here. See, in, in God's calculation, this one flesh marriage is this beautiful picture of equality. I mean, that's really what he's describing here. I'm gonna let the the text speak for itself in the application of that. Um, but here's what I will say. For those of us inside of marriage, and, and we're, like I said, we're gonna, talk, we're gonna talk other situations here in a second, so just realize that Paul's jumping through this right now. Our fulfillment ought to be inside of the marriage. That's, that's how God designed it. Everything that we need ought to be fulfilled inside of marriage. So I'm going to read some statistics here. Um, and I, I don't know. You, you could argue with these percentages, and, you know, it depends on the population size, and you can make statistics say whatever you want, right? But you could go plus or minus about 20% on any of these statistics, and they're still disheartening. Um, my friend fell due to pornography. 94% of our children will see porn before 14. 76% of young men and 33%, sorry, 76% of young Christian men and 33% of young Christian women watch porn. 55% of married men 
and 25% of married women watch porn. 56% of divorces have pornography as a significant factor. 50% of pastors watch porn. <laughs> how, 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 guys? And I, I know there's people in, in this room that, that suffer from this. And, and, um, and I've walked with many of you, and, and, and it, God has the power to conquer us. And if, and if you don't believe that, then you need to check your faith. God. Um, it's pervasive, guys. And I mean, I've told my daughters, I'm like, if I was growing up now, I probably would have a problem with it. But I grew up in a time when I didn't have a phone, you know? And I think for a lot of the older people in here, you might be able to point to that as, as some saving grace. But the situation is what it is now. Um, here's this isn't this isn't a matter of judgment. This is a matter of call for help. Um, my friend fell hard, really hard, and um, it's because it's trans. It's because it's hidden. It's anonymous. It seems innocent. Um, it's not. It's not. There's there's a lot of pain and hurt. It's y'all understand the supply and demand of of capitalism. We create a demand. There's going to be a supply, and that supply isn't going to come from sources that are always pure and intent on doing that. And so what God says is your, your marriage was built for this one flesh union. Husbands and wives, talk about it. Talk about it. I mean, that, that's the solution. Because when you, when you shine light into darkness, that's the solution. But we hide. We hide. And, and that's exactly what happened to this person. He hid it. And he even says at the end of this thing in verse 5, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This isn't a condemnation of our self-control. It's not what Paul's saying here. Paul understands this. He's saying, look, protect yourself. Like, protect yourself. Especially if you're, if you're married. Now remember, this is the context he's talking about in marriage, right? He's like, protect yourself. Verse 7, Paul transitions to singles, and he says, I wish that all were as I myself am. Single is his implication there. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Here's Paul's point in this. Are we our own? 
or our, our lives at the foot of the cross. That, that, this is where he's going with this. And so as he, as he talks about singles, I mean, again, Paul's like, I wish that you were like I am. And he's going to get into more reasons why singleness is a very valid option in Paul's eyes and in God's eyes. Notice that he says, each has his own gift from God. What Paul is saying is that singleness is a gift from God. And marriage is a a gift from God. That's what he's saying. So here's here's the problem. How do we we know? And he points to it, and he'll he'll say it again. It's about this burning with passion, this self-control. If you don't have that... And he goes, man, be single. God gave you the ability to be single. And maybe that's where Paul fell, where he was like, listen, celibacy's okay. I'm okay with it. Maybe. Maybe that's, you. maybe that's yours. Maybe it's not. But what Paul's very clear here is that it's your discernment. You see, our society has so flipped this on its head that it's like, Marriage is the assumed, right? And there's a bunch of single people going, I must get married. Like that is the assumption. That is what life looks like. You gotta, if you're gonna live in suburbia, you better be married, have 2.1 kids, right? Like this is what the construct looks like. That is not the biblical construct. Marriage is a gift from God. Singleness is a gift from God. You guys, like, we should be seeing this as completely different. And yet we are so wrapped up in this cultural understanding of Scripture that we go through this and we just go, no, 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 everybody that's Christian is married. Or, or everybody that's Christian should be married. Or this is what is normal, right? Like this is, but it's totally cultural. And that's not what Scripture provides. And so Paul gives this option, and he's going to reaffirm the very good reasons why here in a little bit. And he's going to say, singleness is good. It's okay. It's a gift from God. And so, and, it, and it's based on self-control. It's based on your ability, your discernment of going, does God want me to be single? And we all in this room are either asking that or have asked that in our lives. Fair? some point, you probably ask that question. Maybe you have an answer. Maybe, maybe the answer doesn't come until later in life. But I would ask that you pray about it. Discern, because Paul doesn't give you a straight answer. We want a straight answer. And this whole notion of Mr. Wright's out there waiting for you is not scriptural. It's not. Stepped on enough toes yet? All right. Verse 10. Then he bounces back. He says, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. I will tell you I am in a 
I think, a minority position on my interpretation of this and, and the rest of the biblical witness to this. And I'll tell you what I believe, and all I can say is this is, this is how I read Scripture, and I'll, I'll just lay it out here, and um, I, I would encourage you to do your own. So first, um, he's talking to people who are currently married. And he says, um, not I, but the Lord. And a little bit later, he's going to say, not the Lord, but I. He, what he's talking about is whether Jesus actually spoke to this command. He's not saying whether his, whether his words are inspired or not. They're in the Bible. They are inspired. What he's saying is that Jesus specifically spoke about this. This one, I'm telling you as an authority, as an apostle by the Holy Spirit, okay? Um, so for this one, he says, Jesus actually spoke to this. Well, where does Jesus speak to this? Well, what Paul has been alluding to and is going to continue to point to is Genesis 2.24, Right? Like that's the verse that Paul is uh, referencing. And, and what you'll find in Genesis 2.24 is Adam and Eve. After Eve is created, Adam declares, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I don't have the verse up there. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Again, this is, this is the picture that Paul is creating of what that marriage covenant looks like, what that relationship inside of marriage ought to look like. And so what then does Jesus say about this in Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 32? He speaks directly about divorce here. Matthew 5, 32. He says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, I'll give you some quick exegesis of this and why I, I think this speaks differently than how we have often interpreted it. Um, everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, that's always been given as, a, um, as the, the escape clause, if you will, right? Like, everything else I have to forgive you for, but if it's sexual immorality, then I don't have to get, forgive you. First of all, that word is pornea, and it's a very broad category. Uh, it's much more broad than many of us would, would care to define it as, probably. Um, That last line, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. How, how, how does that happen? You have a single man who marries a divorced woman. Why is there adultery in that? You see the problem? You see, you see how that doesn't really fall in line with the conventional argument? Like, because Jesus' consideration here is that one flesh union that is for life. That's, that's his consideration. That's what he's referencing. He's like, you became one flesh with that person. You are united to that person. And so when he, when he looks at this, he says, if you, if you then marry that person, right, who, who's already united to somebody else, there's, there's adultery that's happening here. And he even says, makes her commit adultery, right? So I, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. I understand I'm in a minority position in this. But I don't think it's an escape clause. 
I think what, what Jesus is focused on is what is causing adultery and, this, and his emphasis on this one flesh union. And we even saw that if you read 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. What does he do? He compares the one flesh union of a husband and wife with the one spirit union of us and Christ. That's the comparison he makes. If one can't be broken, then the other can't be broken, right? In this life. Now, again, there's other passages of Scripture that talk about that marriage is for this life. And Paul's going to get into some of that here in a bit. And so there's another piece to this, right? Is that our marriages are more than just some sort of solution to uh, our passions. That's not the point of it. Go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, our marriages are representative of Christ and the church. It's, it's not actually about us. <laughs> your marriage is not about your happiness in life. Because there's another gift, right? Singleness. Totally valid option. What is God's objective? To build his kingdom, to proclaim the gospel so that people would be rescued from their depravity and their sin, that they would trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, that the Holy Spirit would invade people's lives, change them, and so declare the power of God. That's the objective of both our marriage and our singleness. That's what God wants us to understand. Your marriage is not for you. Your singleness is not for you. It is all for God's purposes. And yet somehow we've wrapped this up and we went, awesome, thanks. Have you ever given a kid, like, man, let's, let's picture yourself a five-year-old boy and give him an eight-foot-long, like, uh, uh, tree branch. Like, nice, thin tree branch. What's he going to do? And you're like, hey, go, go throw this away. He's going to be swinging that thing like a sword and hitting absolutely everything. And if he's got a sibling... You can probably expect there's going to be a nice mark, right, on one of you. And so, like, God gives us these things, and we take them, and we use them, and, and, like, for not the purposes that he intended them for. But he understands. He gave us the passions that we have. You see, there, there's, there's a twofold purpose in this. But if we're not careful, we start to lopsided, and we start to go, this is all about me. And my marriage is about me when it's really intended to be glorifying to God, which is why in Ephesians 5.25, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See, our marriages ought to be so uniquely different from the world that they point to God's love. What a shame if our marriages point to just how great we are. That's not the point. That's not what God has from That's not why he gave you marriage. It's a gift. He gave it to you. Congratulations. Now go glorify God in your marriage. That's what your marriage is for. But what do we do? We worship our marriages. We worship our kids. We worship our families. We worship this thing that we call the nuclear family now, right? And we say, this is what it should look like. And for all you youth out there, if you can get here, you're good. And we're like, how about we glorify God and we pretend like we believe uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul says, you are not your own. Glorify God in your bodies. 
Because that's really what God wants to have happen, whichever direction your life takes you. So, I don't think I even spoke to what the, specifically what that verse says in that it says, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. I think there is a whole world that just does not get spoken to. That is, sometimes there's irreconcilable differences. Sometimes there's nuances, and, and I don't even want to pretend to be able to answer this. Again, Paul's operating in gray areas here, okay? So if I'm saying something, you're like, that you, you missed this exception, and there's this. Yes, there are a, a ton of exceptions and nuances in different situations. Um, I'm just interpreting what, what Scripture says here, and, and there's probably some, some clarification and things, and please bring them to me. Email me. Um, email me the what-ifs and the nuances and see, like, what, what let, let's discuss them. Because we're, we're very, right, the heart is deceitful above all things. We're very good. At, at arguing for our own cases. I will tell you, when Melissa and I were engaged, man, I was interpreting Scripture in ways, in fact, th- this chapter, I was trying to interpret Scripture in a way that would help fulfill what I wanted to have happen, okay? <laughs> was that too obvious? <laughs> it's true. It's true. And there I was at a Christian college going, but wait... Doesn't this say this, right? Because we're good at that. We're good at it. I wasn't planning on saying that, honey. So. <laughs> so what he says is, you can be, you can stay unmarried. And, and maybe if the marriage isn't right, Maybe that's where it is. Maybe if you were married before you were a Christian and things, like it's just bad and it's, and it's um, you know, horribly unhealthy, maybe divorce is the right option. I think I can say that and, and stay with Scripture because of what Paul says here. But I think the commitment is that you're unmarried, that you stay unmarried because you're still one flesh united to that person independent of how horrible of a person is. That's my view on it. I'm I'm prepared for the emails. (laughs) All right, so then he goes on, verse 12. To the rest, I say, and then he says, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? (laughs) This is such a beautiful piece of pastoral scripture, um, what, what a nuance, right? In the Corinthian church, and, and honestly, even for us, right? People were married, and then one became a believer. And again, they went down this, this religious ethic road, which Paul's going to address here in a second. They're going to go, listen, I can't be married to an unbeliever. Can't be unequally yoked, so I need to get divorced, and that's it. 
And so that's, that's what, he, that's what it, 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 people were saying. And he goes, no, no, no. I, we don't want all these Christian people running out of their marriages, right? And going and trying to find somebody that's a Christian because, and, and then forsake the marriage covenant that God specifically created, right? And so what Paul does is he, he's like, he's prioritizing this one flesh union. He's going, no, no, that's more, most important. Now, you've been united to this person. So what do you do? You look at it through a gospel lens. They get to see your life of faith. You just became an evangelistic husband or an evangelistic wife. And you now live a faithful life, obedient to Scripture. Your kids will then see that life. And they're made holy, set apart, right? There's, there's a distinction. Don't, don't read holy as being super uber-righteous and not ever sinning, okay? That's not, that's not what the term means. So he says, like, this is, this is a good thing. He goes, how do you know? Maybe in your relationship, your husband or your wife will come to faith because of your persistence. But on the other hand, if, if that person wants to, nothing to do with your relationship anymore because your faith is an encumbrance to what you want to do, he says, let them go. Now, I will tell you, I just listened to a sermon by somebody that I really respect, that he says that this means that that person can get remarried. I disagree. I disagree. It doesn't, it doesn't say that in there. I think this goes back to the previous ones, and he says, don't get remarried, but you can, you can let that happen. Let the person leave. You're called to peace. Now live a life of peace, glorifying God. I'm ready for those emails too. But it's a beautiful passage of scripture, right? Because there's so many people, and maybe you guys are, right? Maybe there's this discrepancy in, in faith in your relationship, and, and one person's dragging the other to church and, and kind of walking through that. There's, there's, there's a walk of faith in that. And it's okay. Right? Just in the same sense that, and he's going to talk to this next, just in the same sense you don't have to leave your profession, right, and, and start working at the church. Right? We don't, we, God doesn't want all of us getting plucked out of the situations we're in just to be in this little, like, holy roller club. That's not the point of what God is saying here. All right, verse 17. And this is what he goes into now. And he, he kind of takes this little tangent a little bit, and he, he expands the implications of this. He says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity, right? He's talking about slaves here, right? He says, for he who, call, he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. That's that gospel lens. He's like, you understand this, right? Just because your situation here on earth looks one way doesn't mean that's how you're seen by God. He says, you were bought with a price. Goes back to 1 Corinthians 6, right? Do not become bondservants of men. 
Don't be dominated. Don't be enslaved. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So he, he extrapolates this, not just into this marriage thing, right? It's saying like, hey, if you're, if you're married, you know, God calls you, you're now a follower of Christ, you don't need to change your marriage situation, right? And he's saying the same thing. He goes, this goes into your profession, everything you do, live where you're called. Respond to God where you're at. You see, God wants us to be pervasive in society. He wants the gospel to be shown through the salt and light of our lives, He wants us speaking truths in places where the truth doesn't exist. He wants us to call people out and declare who God is in some situations. And in other situations, he wants us to be silent and live in a way that garners respect and glorifies God. He does not want us to try to change our entire lives socially, the fabric of our lives, just because we're following him. What he wants us to do is follow him in the midst of our lives where we are at. All right, now he's going to get back to it. This may or may not have been what I was talking about earlier. Now, concerning the betrothed, betrothed is like engagement plus now, okay? Engagement, but it was like, almost basically married in, in this day. So, I mean, it was pretty much like, like there, was a, there were contracts signed, there was money changed hands then, you know, there was, like, it was like legit, and it was just kind of a, a, a season. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on that. But for our intents and purposes, it's probably pretty decent to just use the term engaged. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my ju- judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So this is where Paul is saying, like, Jesus didn't talk to this specifically, but I am. I think that in the view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have... W- uh, actually, I think that's verse 3. Sorry. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. This is kind of his, this is his thesis statement in all of this. The world's passing away. If you're focused on your marriage in, in a way that is worshipful, an idol that's not focused on glorifying God, he's like, your marriage is going to be gone when you die. You understand that, right? He goes, these things are temporary. What's our point? What's our motivation? Look at it through a gospel lens. And what he says is, no, no, the gospel is what matters. Eternal life is what matters. Rescuing people, proclaiming Jesus as the only path, the way, the truth, and the life, that's what matters. And so in whatever circumstance and whatever things you're dealing with, I mean, whether it's mourning or rejoicing 
Or, I mean, he even says if you're married, act like you're not, right? I mean, he's not, again, this is where if you take these out of context, you could go into a very bad place, right? What he's saying is that it doesn't matter. These things are perishing. The first and number one priority in our lives is to glorify God with our lives. That's our purpose. That's why he says you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And he says in the, in the midst of that, your time is short. Given the current, uh, let me think, uh, the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Now, th- again, this isn't authoritative, but that present distress, the time is short. Some commentators have gone and looked at this and gone, well, Paul's writing this about 20 years before Jerusalem was, uh, was taken over and the temple destroyed. And so there was a unique timing, and this was as if you were like, traveling around Europe in the midst of World War II, and you're thinking about having a wedding ceremony as you're passing through a town. Right? He's like, Dude, we're in the middle of combat here. There's no time for this stuff. I don't think that's really faithful to the text. I think what, what Paul's trying to say is all of us should have this anticipation that Jesus is coming back. Right? Like we're, we're called to believe that, that like at any moment, at any time, Jesus is going to return and so we need to be evaluating and living our lives in a way that, that represents that, that reflects that. And so the priorities in our lives should line up with that. And given the present distress and that time is short, we ought to take a very clear evaluation of our lives. And we ought to determine what our time is useful for. And so that's his point in that context Marriage and singleness, neither one of them should be the focus of our lives. I think that's worthy of repeating because I think it consumes almost all of what we think about. Marriage or singleness, it's not that significant. God being glorified is significant. It's eternal. It's lasting. Now, he's given you either marriage or singleness. Use it to glorify him, to proclaim the gospel. That's the point of it, okay? I know that seems counterintuitive, certainly from a societal perspective. Then he gives a a reason. Now he kind of backs up and kind of gives his argument for celibacy. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties, in verse 32. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is is anxious about the things of of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So once again, you see how Paul is kind of finding this gray space here. He's like, I'm not laying a restraint. I'm not telling you what you should or should not do. He's telling you, I want you to have unrestrained devotion to the Lord. First and foremost, above all things, that comes first. That's the point of your creation. That's why you breathe every morning. Is to proclaim the gospel. And he, he makes it a very real, and this is probably why some people interpret that Paul probably was married at some point because 
he seems to have a pretty good insight into married life. Because you're right, right? As, as husbands and wives, we're occupied with a lot of things, right? I mean, there's certain obligations that we have to take care of, and especially if you have kids, even more, right? And so what Paul is saying here is like, don't you understand? Like, like if you're single in here, and maybe God has gifted you with that, or at least for this time you're single, God's like, awesome. I can, like, you have nothing that is, nothing else that's distracting you. You can purely serve me and proclaim the gospel in your life. On your way home here from church, if you're single, you get to make whatever decision you want. I, I don't. I don't even know what I'm doing when I get home. <laughs> but I will be told what I'm doing. I'm just joking. It's not. But that's the reality, right? I mean, there's, you're, there's requirements. There's obligations. There's things that I could say, oh, I, honey, I'm going to get home, and I'm just going to go into the room, and I'm just going to study Scripture for the rest of the day. She'd be like, that sounds great. Uh, that's not going to work. <laughs> But why? That's the most holy thing I can do, right? You see, you see the, the dilemma that married people have. So in Paul's estimation, he's like, or you cannot have any of that and you can just serve God. You see, I mean, th- we are so muddied up up here and tangled of like this society's evaluation of where marriage stands that we go, I don't even see it that way. And I struggle significantly with this. Because I, I, I mean, like, I look at my daughters, and I'm like, I, I want you to have what I have, because that's what I know. That's fair. But we got to be honest, and we got to look at Scripture, and we got to say, yeah, but that's not, what, that's not what Scripture says. In fact, there's some amazing blessings. And so if you're single in here, if you've always been single, or if you have become single by whatever circumstance, that may just be God saying, here. I I want you to have this gift of singleness and you can serve me in this beautiful way. In verse 36, he says, if anyone thinks, now this is the verse that I, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it's no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined that in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. You see Paul's perspective here. Paul isn't heightening some virtue of celibacy, saying that this is better than marriage. He's not saying that marriage is better than celibacy. He's saying that God gives gifts to both and that we should discern them and how to use either of them to proclaim the gospel. That's his point. Stop letting the culture define your perspective on marriage or singleness. And then he has this beautiful section at the end here where, again, very pastoral, um, and he, he clarifies, right, in verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, right? That's that one flesh union. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And so he gives a provision for widows and widowers saying that they can remarry. You see, you see the difference, right? In contrast to what Jesus said before with um, you divorcing and then causing them to commit adultery, right? And committing adultery by marrying somebody that's divorced. 
He's now saying that as a widow and a widower, it's different. Why? Because the one flesh union was dissolved at the death of the person. This is, this is real stuff. Like, I, I understand that, like, in our minds, we look at this one flesh union, we go, that's a cute little thing. That's neat. Like, it's a little weird sometimes when you say it, but, like, it's, it's a neat little, you know, uh, perspective, and, and it's, a, it's a cute way of thinking about marriage. No, that's not, that's not what the Bible communicates as one flesh. It is substantially different. Your relationship with that person is one flesh. And this is why this is the foundation for the basis of everything that Paul is saying here. Remember, in, in chapter 6, he tied our one flesh marriages to the one spirit union between us and Jesus Christ. The fact that we have, in fact, in chapter 6, he even says that if you go to a prostitute, you're taking Jesus with you. That's what he says. In the same way, us in a one flesh union, wherever we go, whatever we're doing, we're taking our spouse with us. Unless they've passed on. And he says, verse 40, yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. And so what he says, he's talking to the widow and widower, and he's saying, you can get remarried, but I think you'd be happier if you did. Now, again, very gray area here, right? Like this is not Paul saying, thou shalt, thou shalt not. All of that, a lot of this is very nuanced. And I am sure that I did not cover every exception or every situation that's in this room, but I would just offer that we look at chapter seven and align our lives, our priorities, after what the gospel proclaims. Why? Because we were created to glorify him. Because our lives were purchased on the cross. Because we were rescued. Not because God wants us to be this beautiful little museum piece that he can put on a shelf, but that we can go and shine light into this world in a unique way in the midst of our marriages, in the midst of our celibacy. And we can say, God's greater. God's better than my marriage. God's better than my singleness. God's better than anything that this world has to offer me. That's what we're called to. Let me pray.